This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. Volume 43, Number 12, from December of 1965. The Celebration of Christmas Written by Dr. Joseph L. Blau Quote, As a Remembrance to My Father In widely separated areas of the world, among peoples of most diverse cultures, religious observances tend to cluster around striking natural phenomena. One of the most impressive of these, tied, as even the least analytic of primitives soon realize, very closely to the recurrent phases of the sun's annual course, is the annual cycle of vegetation. The most frightening of the sun's phases is its apparent death at the winter solstice. Because of the fear it arouses, the death of the sun is most apt to be met by an elaborate ritual celebration. For several months, the power of the sun has been steadily abating. Its warmth has grown less and less. The early phenomena of winter overlap the last evidences of summer. Corresponding to the weakening of the powers of the life-giving sun, there has been a lessening of the food supply. Birds and animals begin to disappear, whether by migration or into hibernation. The plants that provided such a fine source of nutriment in the months of spring and summer no longer produce their fruits. The surplus stored in the days of plenty diminishes rapidly in the days of scarcity. Imminent disaster seems to be in prospect for the whole community unless the course of cosmic events can be reversed, whether by man's direct and magical activities or as a divine response to man's pleas for help. Anthropologists and ethnologists have described many rituals associated with the winter solstice, and an inescapable conclusion from the reading of these accounts is that in those regions where winters are more intense, where the death of the sun seems more a literal statement of fact than a metaphorical exaggeration, the religious ceremonials tend to be more solemn and somber, more intense, more vital to the life of the group. A second frequently recurring motif, closely connected with the theme of the death of the sun, centers on the theme of fertility. Here the emphasis is placed directly upon the food supply, rather than indirectly upon the sun as the source of the food supply. Fertility rituals directed toward the maintenance of the food supply often involved periods of ritual licentiousness coming either at the moment of greatest danger, the winter solstice, or at the time when a little human help might improve conditions, at the spring equinox. The Dravidians, who were, as far as we know, the aboriginal inhabitants of India, celebrated at both times. Their spring festival, Holly, centered in a magical fire whose purpose was to ensure a due supply of sunshine for the crops, while their winter festival was a twelve-night period of licentiousness following the winter solstice. One 19th-century English writer has left us the following description of the Dravidian Winter Festival. Quote, 
They have a strange notion that at this period men and women are so overcharged with vicious propensities that it is absolutely necessary for the safety of the person to let off steam by allowing for a time full vent to the passions. The festival, therefore, becomes a Saturnale, during which servants forget their duty to their masters, children their reverence for their parents, men their respect for women, and women all notions of modesty, delicacy, and gentleness. They become raging bacantes. End of quote. The explanation is given in terms of a most naive psychology. What he describes is a typical pattern of a winter solstice fertility festival. Without further illustrations, which abound in the literature, let us consider the relevance of this material to the Christmas festival. First, it must be pointed out that the Christian tradition nowhere asserts that Jesus was born on the 25th of December or on any day in any calendar corresponding to the 25th of December. Christmas Day is the day selected by the Church to recite the Mass celebrating the Nativity, not the day on which the Nativity actually took place. There is no evidence of the existence of any celebration of the Nativity before the 4th century. Pope Liberius, in 353-54 A.D., was the first to authorize the celebration of the Feast of the Nativity, Christmas, on December 25th. This authorization affected the Church in Rome. The first recorded celebration of Christmas in the Eastern Churches took place somewhere around 378 A.D., and not until 388 was Christmas celebrated in Antioch. Thus, the celebration of Christmas on this date was a Roman event that gradually spread to the rest of the churches. We must, therefore, seek the reason for its introduction in the situation at Rome in the 4th century, rather than in the records of the life of Jesus. Such a reason is not hard to find. There is no reason to doubt that in selecting December 25th, the Church was anxious to distract the attention of Christians from the old pagan feast days by celebrating the Christian festivals on the same days. December 25th was a most important non-Christian holiday. In Mithraism, the mystery religion that was the most important competitor of Christianity in Rome at this time, December 25th was the Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, the birthday of the unvanquished sun. Mithraism was a solar religion. The birthday of the unvanquished sun was a typical winter solstice festival. Furthermore, we should take note that December 24th was the last of the ten days of the Saturnalia. In Roman paganism, the entire month of December was dedicated to Saturn. Originally, the Saturnalia, the festival of licentiousness associated with Saturn, was a one-day affair on December 17th. Augustus had extended it to three days, December 17th to 19th. Later, in about 100 AD, the Saturnalia was stretched out to five days. In the second century, Lucian speaks of the Saturnalia as lasting a week and gives some description of the practices involved, such as the choosing of mock kings. By the fourth century, Saturnalia had become a ten-day period during which all rules of proper behavior were suspended. Undoubtedly, the Saturnalia, as well as the Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, 
enters into the background of the selection of December 25th as the date on which to celebrate the Feast of the Nativity. The Mithraic observance was probably the more important element in the first instance, for in the Clementine homilies an equation was made between Christ and the Son, an equation that may itself reveal the syncretistic spirit at work trying to incorporate Mithraic ideas into the young Christian faith. Once a suggestion of this sort had been made, the further suggestion of Christmas celebration on the birthday of the sun, the time of the year when the victory of light over darkness begins to be apparent in the lengthening of the days, is not at all surprising. Like the date itself, Christmas customs that have prevailed, and some that still prevail, in the European and American practices associated with the Feast of the Nativity, were not originally Christian at all but rather heathen customs that have been absorbed or at least tolerated by the church. Even the cradle of the infant Christ, the central object of Roman Catholic reverence on Christmas Eve, was borrowed from the Near Eastern mystery cult of Adonis. More frequently, the sources of Christmas customs are either Roman or Teutonic. While no generalization is precise, it can be said that most of the merry customs associated with the celebration of Christmas derive from Rome. It is hard, for example, to tell if this passage describes Christmas or Saturnalia. Quote, the time was one of general joy and mirth. During the festival, schools were closed. No punishment was inflicted. In place of the toga, an undress garment was worn. Distinctions of rank were laid aside. Slaves sat at the table by their masters, or were actually waited upon by them, and the utmost freedom of speech was allowed them. Gambling with dice, at other times illegal, was now permitted and practiced. All classes exchanged gifts, the commonest being wax tapers and clay dolls. These dolls were especially given to children. End of quote. This is actually part of a description of late Roman Christmas festivities. The widespread medieval custom of selecting an abbot of unreason, or, as he was frequently called in England, an abbot of misrule, as a mock dignitary to preside over the Christmas revels, was adopted from the Saturnalia. The French had a corresponding position, that of the Abbe de Lies, also known by such Latin titles as Rex Stultorum, and facetiarum princeps. There were other such mock dignitaries in the various sections of Europe. They masqueraded in the vestments of the upper clergy, and were even temporarily invested with some of the functions of the higher echelons of the clergy. The whole pattern was connected with the Feast of Fools, or Festum Fatuorum, of the medieval church. The relation of these customs to the Saturnalia sometimes called more formally Libertas Decembris, is too clear to require further comment. In absorbing such practices as these, the Church was attempting to distract people from the paganism in which the customs originated by transferring them, as far as possible, to a Christian context. Concessions such as these did not, however, succeed in checking the Libertas that had been an integral part of the pagan feast. Frequent ecclesiastical condemnation of the excesses of the Festum Fatuorum proved unavailing in moderating licentiousness, and finally the whole complex of customs was officially suppressed in 1555. 
The northern, or Teutonic, accretions to the stock of Christmas customs from pre-Christian sources are usually more clearly related to the theme of the death and revival of the sun and most closely connected with the Scandinavian Yule Feast. The Icelandic sagas report the Yuleblot as the great sacrifice of the winter solstice, offered for the good crop, for the year's luck, and for peace. Other similar sacrifices and customs are described in the Adas. Many of these reappear, in attenuated form, in Christmas practices in the northern European countries. A Danish Christmas hymn, written by the great theologian Nikolai Frederick Grundtvig, has the angels, if they are received kindly in a house, prophesy a good year for the seed and grains slumbering in the fields. Grundtvig was also a scholarly recorder of northern mythologies. An old English custom, tying in with Scandinavian and other fertility rites, was that of wassailing the fruit trees on Christmas Eve. This involved drinking to the health of the trees and pouring out a libation to them. Robert Herrick, the 17th century English poet and clergyman, wrote, Wassail the trees that they may bear, you many a plum and many a pear. For more or less fruits they will bring, as you do give them wassailing. The custom of wassailing the trees continued well into the 19th century, where, in the vicinity of the New Forest, the following verse was sung at the wassailing of the trees on Christmas Eve. Apples and pears with right good corn come in plenty to every one. Eat and drink good cake and hot ale. Give earth to drink, and she'll not fail. Thus do ancient fertility elements persist into the modern celebration of Christmas. In England and the United States of America, generally, Christmas customs adhere more closely to the Saturnalia type than to observances related to the sun, closer to the Southern European than to the Northern European type. So, for example, mistletoe, the use of which is considered authorization for an extremely mild form of wantonness, is a common element in Anglo-American Christmas celebration. Use of the mistletoe cannot be traced back, despite the assumptions of early scholars, to Celtic paganism. It is an artificial revival, not a genuine survival. The Christmas tree is a tradition originating in 17th century Germany but not in general acceptance even in Germany until the end of the 18th century. Popular derivation ascribes the tree to ancient Scandinavian custom, but it was not accepted in Scandinavia until the 19th century. Perhaps the original Christmas tree, the German Weihnachtsbaum, was developed by analogy with the genuinely pagan rites centering on the fertility symbol of the Mayenbaum, the Maypole. Holly and ivy were not originally connected with the Christmas festivities at all, but were associated with the Shrove Tuesday revels. But mildly Saturnalian reveling, the exchange of gifts, the free intermingling of classes, as in the English Christmas association of the nobility with their hired help and with the peasantry, an association that seems to be preserved in classless America in the office party all these Saturnalian elements are strongly entrenched in the Anglo-American Christmas tradition. Christmas was originally, and until quite recently, a Roman Catholic and Church of England festival, with which good Protestants had no truck. <laughs>
in Puritan, Massachusetts Bay Colony, it was a crime, punishable by the stocks, to observe Christmas. The Puritan view is well expressed by the English writer William Prynne in his Histriomastics from 1633. The affinity between Christmas revels and the Saturnalia is so close, both in time of the celebration and in manner, both of them being spent in reveling, epicurism, wantonness, idleness, dancing, drinking, stage plays, and such other Christmas disorders, and in the manner of observance, that all pious Christians should eternally abominate them. The English and Roman churches disagree about the dates of the Christmas season. In the Roman church, the accepted dates run from Christmas Eve to January 13th, while the English church celebrates the Christmas season from December 16th to January 6th, which is Twelfth Night. Many American Christian clergymen and an occasional Jewish rabbi produce annual diatribes calling on their flocks, or on their neighbors, to return to the traditional religious celebration of Christmas. If the few illustrations I have given here prove anything at all, it is that there is no one traditional way, religious or not, of celebrating Christmas. If what the clergy are asking is a renewed sense of devotion to the ideals for which Jesus of Nazareth spoke and to which he dedicated his life, then surely their demand is justified. But there has never been a time in Christian history when this was the way of the people in celebrating Christmas. As befits a nation made up of immigrants from all over the Christian world, Americans have no distinctive Christmas symbols. But we have taken the symbols of all the nations and made them our own. The Christmas tree, the holly and ivy, the mistletoe, the exchange of gifts, the myth of Santa Claus, the carols of all nations, the plum pudding and the wassail bowl are all elements in the American Christmas of the mid-twentieth century. Though we have no Christmas symbols of our own, the American Christmas still has a distinctive aura by virtue of two characteristic elements. The first of these is that, as might be expected in a nation as dedicated to the carrying on of business as the American nation, the dominant role of the Christmas festivities has come to serve as a stimulus to retail business. The themes of Christmas advertising begin to appear as early as September, and the open season on Christmas shopping begins in November. Fifty years ago, Thanksgiving Day was regarded as the opening day of the season for Christmas shopping. Today, the season opens immediately after Halloween. Thus, virtually a whole month has been added to the Christmas season, for shopping purposes. Second, the Christmas season of festivities has insensibly combined with the New Year's celebration into one lengthened period of Saturnalia. This starts with the office parties a few days before Christmas, continues on Christmas Eve, now the occasion in America of one or two large-scale revels that mark the season, save that the Christmas Eve revels are often punctuated by a visit to one of the larger churches for Midnight Mass which has increasingly tended to become blended into a part of the entertainment aspect of the season, and continues in spirited euphoria until New Year's Eve, the second of the large-scale revels. New Year's Day is spent resting, possibly regretting one's excesses, watching a football bowl game, and indulging in the lenitive of one's choice. 
January 2nd marks, for most, the return to temperance and decorum and business as usual. There are many ways of celebrating Christmas. Whichever way is yours, whether you prefer to consider Christmas as religious festival or Saturnalia, as sacred symbol or as secular diversion, may this Christmas fulfill your expectations of it and lead you into a better year. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry. And this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.